Good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, I think at this point, it kind of goes without saying that uh, 2020 has been a difficult year. 2020 has definitely been a difficult year. Um, my wife and I were at home with COVID ourselves the past three weeks or so. We're all recovered now, and thank the Lord we had some mild symptoms. But uh, when you tend to be at home for a few weeks, uh, you get sort of self-reflective, contemplative, start philosophizing a little bit. You don't got much else to do. And uh, I was just, I tend to see myself as an optimist. And so I was trying to look and sort of see what are the good things that have come out of 2020, especially it being Christmas time. And um, there's just one thought I really couldn't escape. And it's kind of an odd one, or it may sound odd at first, but for the first time, in a long time, nearly everyone in our culture is contemplating the reality of death. Nearly everyone in our culture is contemplating the reality of death. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Ecclesiastes 7.2, says that that is a good thing. It says, it's better to be in the house of mourning the house of weeping, then in the house of feasting. Why? Because this is the end. This is the destiny of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. And so people are contemplating death. And in reality, we live in a death-denying culture. We do. Think about it. Graveyards, crematoriums, mortuaries, they're hidden from anywhere where there's a major population. Think of all the euphemisms we have for death. Passed on, taken before their time, pushing up daisies, whatever it may be. We have all these euphemisms for death as well to escape the reality that death is coming. It sounds harsh when you say they died rather than using a euphemism. In our culture, we have endless marketing for health products, exercise program, health technology, all prolonging the inevitability of our death. Not that you should never do anything healthy or good, but the reality is that we are going to die one day from something. And people in our culture are beginning to contemplate that. And when it comes to death, the Bible is true. The Bible is helpful. And death is a reality that the Bible never attempts to hide. If you've ever read the Bible, it's bloody, it's gruesome, and it's full of death. All kinds of death. Nearly every single book in the Bible, death plays a major role in some way. Think about that. Nearly every book in the Bible, death plays a role nearly in every way. And though God was not the initiator of death, Death does not escape his sovereign purposes. It doesn't escape its meaning and purpose in his story. And while all death is significant in God's eyes, even Jesus taught that even a bird that falls to the ground, God sees and cares. There's a certain kind of death that comes to prominence in God's story throughout the Bible. And it's a death related to sacrifice. A death related to sacrifice, and the sacrifice is the death of one in the place of another. It's a substitutionary death. 
And in fact, the central point of God's story, the pinnacle of his story, Jesus on the cross, the Son of God, is a death. And God has placed something for his sovereign purposes, his Son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice upon the cross, as the center of his story. And so my aim today is to help you understand the role that sacrifice has played in God's story and God's redemptive plan so that you might grasp the significance for your life of the sacrificial death of Christ for you. So to do that, we're going to have three points. So if you like outlines, this is going to be our outline today. The history of sacrifice, the purpose of sacrifice, and the significance of sacrifice. So let's begin with the history of sacrifice. Where did sacrifice actually begin? If you have a Bible, uh, open it up to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But Genesis chapter 3, it's the very beginning of God's story. And to be honest, if you've ever wondered why human beings, why we connect with stories so much, it's honestly because God is the master storyteller. The reason we liked character development, twists, plots, redemptive heroes, where does that come from? That comes from our creator. That comes from being made in the image of God. And God's story is an excellent one. And so Genesis is the beginning of God's story. And so far in Genesis 3, we've learned a few things by Genesis 3. We learned that God is the creator of all things, the universe, everything in it, and humankind. We learned that God, uh, although unfortunately he, or I should say fortunately, he gave mankind everything that he has, but unfortunately mankind chose to rebel against God, to disobey God. And God warned them that in the moment they disobeyed, they would die. And in the moment they did, in that day, spiritually and physically, they began to die, and so death entered the world. And because, Rick pointed this out last week, but actually because the reality of Adam and Eve actually being in dominion over the rest of creation, the rest of creation would actually suffer as well. When you look at the curses that God gives to humanity for their rebellion against him and to the serpent, the earth is cursed as well, which is why Paul says all of creation groans for redemption. It's subjected to futility. But in chapter 3, we see God's sovereign plan already unfolding. We already see how God was not caught off guard by what Adam and Eve would do. And so we read uh, in the verses preceding uh, verse 20 and 21 in chapter 3 of these curses that God... um, gives humanity consequences for what they have done. But in verse 20 and 21, there's a glimmer of hope. And to be honest, I think a lot of people miss it. I missed it for a long time. But verses 21 and 21 say this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So in one sense, that's a glimmer of hope, the mother of all living. But then it says this in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God made garments of skins and clothed them. What is that about? Well, early in the chapter, what did Adam and Eve do? 
the, real, the moment of realization of their sin and their shame, they took it upon themselves to cover themselves with fig leaves. They were naked in the garden. And that was their attempt to cover their shame, to cover their sin before God. But in verse 21, what we see is God clothes them with something new, animal skins. Where did those come from? The implication is obvious. Two animals were sacrificed right there that God sacrificed and initiated to clothe Adam and Eve and to cover their shame. It was the first sacrifice. Two animals had to take the place of the consequence Adam and Eve should have immediately received. They should have been executed on the spot. But instead, God showed them grace even there. Even there, he showed them grace. And to even illustrate this point a little further, think to the next chapter, to Cain and Abel. You know the story, Cain and Abel are there. Cain uh, brings an offering of the ground, some fruit. Abel brings an offering of an animal. And some people are sort of perplexed of, why does God refuse Cain's offering, an offering of the ground, and yet accepts Abel's offering. I can't say this for certain, but I think likely what happened in understanding the context of Genesis, you could see Adam as their father. And you could see him sitting his boys down and say, there is a way to approach God. There is a way you must come to God. And it is through sacrifice. Something must take your place, sons, Because we are sinners and we have rebelled against God. And I think that's ultimately, likely, why Cain's offering was rejected. That his father probably taught him what the right way to approach God was. And this teaches us something in Genesis. A principle is set forth concerning sacrifice. God ordained only one way for humans to be made right with him again. And it was because of their sin. And it was that a sacrifice had to be made. Someone had to pay the price. There had to be a substitute in their place. And what that tells us is we don't get to choose how we worship God. We don't get to choose to set the terms of our relationship with God. God sets those terms of how we come to him. And so God set it up so that sacrifice would be the way that we would come to him. And that was the first sacrifice. Moving a little bit forward, we move to the national sacrifice. And certainly Exodus plays a huge part in this, but I think Rick did such a good job talking about the sacrifice in Exodus. We're going to move right on to Leviticus. So you can turn to Leviticus 16. But the point here is made even more abundant and clear than Genesis. Leviticus serves, if you're not familiar with Leviticus, as the instruction of how do God's people live within his covenant that he has made. And ultimately, these instructions culminate in Leviticus 16. You will not understand Leviticus unless you understand uh, Leviticus 16. It's with the language of Leviticus 16 that all the New Testament writers talked about Jesus' death. 
that the Jews who would have been hearing about Christ and hearing the type of language that these New Testament writers were reading would have thought of Leviticus 16. And so, beginning in Leviticus 16, verse 5, to give you a little bit of context, God is speaking to Moses, and he's giving him instructions on the Day of Atonement. And it even begins with God elaborating that the two sons of the high priest Aaron were killed because they offered a sacrifice that was not acceptable to God. God actually consumed them with fire from the altar. And so God is now giving instructions. This is how you approach me on this unique day. And in verse 5, he says this, And he, speaking of Aaron, the high priest, shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Eitzazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Eitzazel, Eitzazel, by the way, is the name for a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Etzadzel. What's happening here? What is happening here? God is giving instructions to Aaron for the day of atonement, the day when Israel's sins would be atoned for, when they would be covered. And what he was going to do is take one goat and he was going to sacrifice it before the Lord. And it was a symbol and a reminder of what their sin had earned and what they deserved. But there was another goat that he was to take and he was to let go in the wilderness only after putting his hands on it and confessing the sins of Israel. And what that represented was God removing, atoning, covering the sins of Israel. And it would be let go out of the camp of Israel. So like I said, this was the Day of Atonement, the most important national day for any Jew. And God, again, provided the only way for Israel to have their sins removed was through sacrifice. I mean, the Hebrew word for atonement literally means a covering. God would cover their sins because a substitute would take their place. It's a constant reminder of the consequences of their sin and yet a constant reminder that God was willing to wipe away their sins and only he could keep them in a right relationship with him. But there was a problem with that system because people never stopped sinning and so there was no end to the sacrifice and so going back to death when you read Leviticus when you read Numbers and Exodus there was just endless slaughtering of these animals because it seems there's no end to people's sin and you can imagine it would have been a frustrating cycle sacrificing sacrificing always going to the temple and making these sacrifices but God also prophesied of a future sacrifice he offered Israel a great hope. 
a sacrifice that would be for all sins, not just what had happened up until that point, but past, present, and future. A perfect sacrifice, an eternally sufficient sacrifice. And so take a look at a familiar passage with me for Christmas. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 12. We're just going to read part of it. But beginning in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 53, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And at the, at the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. And so notice... Look at the familiarity of language of sacrifice in this. And it would have been a very unique thing because God actually forbid Israel, do not be like the nations around you. You shall not offer your children or any human being for a sacrifice. But this speaks of a sacrifice that God will give. And he uses the language of sacrifice to prophesy about this coming suffering servant. And if you read the rest of the verses around it, it's even more clear that he was a lamb led to slaughter. And so God speaks of a coming person, not just an animal, with language familiar to Israel. The language of sacrifice. Someone who would permanently deal with the problem of sin. And so that brings us to the purpose of sacrifice. What is the purpose ultimately of sacrifice, of Christ's sacrifice in particular? And ultimately there's a lot of them that I can't cover in this sermon. So if I don't cover what you would hope to hear, I'm sorry. But there's only so many points that can be made. But I picked what I thought were the two most prominent. The two most prominent purposes of sacrifice in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Paul says this. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. One of the main purposes of God's sacrifice was propitiation. It's a big word, it's a fancy word, but it means something pretty simple. It means really two things in one. It means first, it means the wiping away or the removal of sin, the atoning of sin. But the second part is it includes the satisfaction or the appeasement of God's wrath, of God's justice against sin. You see, Jesus' sacrifice was necessary because none of those animals ever actually took away anyone's sins. The author of Hebrews says it is impossible for the uh, blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
those animals ever only acted as a placeholder. It says here in this, in this Romans verse that God passed over former sins, that he forbear them. He postponed his judgment. So that even the people in the Old Testament, their sins, ultimately the punishment for it, was only postponed until Christ came. And Christ would actually pay for their sins. And so one of the main purposes of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross was propitiation on our behalf. He satisfied the wrath of God. And when the Bible speaks of being saved, when the Bible, when people say, are you saved? When the Bible says you have to be saved, it's not talking about being saved from the devil, although that does happen. It's not being talked about being saved from the world or yourself. It's talking about being saved from God. God is a righteous God. He is a good God and he will punish all sin and evil, even the evil that exists inside of us. And that's what we need to be saved from, is from God. Jesus said, you don't have to fear people who will kill your body. Fear him who can throw your, after he has killed your body, can throw you into hell for eternity. He's not talking about the devil, he's talking about God. That you should fear God. And so propitiation was important and that's why Paul uses that word. But the second is justification. And just like the other sacrifices symbolized this but never actually accomplished it, Christ actually accomplished it. It was there. And so Jesus' sacrifice, you must understand, it doesn't just bring the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' sacrifice does not only bring the forgiveness of sin. It's not that your sins are just transferred to him. His righteousness is transferred to you. That if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, repented of your sins and had faith, God looks at you as if you have lived Jesus' perfect life. Not because you actually have, but because Christ has for you. That is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion on the face of the world. No other religion says that your righteousness does not come from you, that it ultimately comes from another and is imputed to you, given to you, transferred to you. But that is what happened, and that is how God justifies us. It says this in Romans 5, Paul writes in verses 9 and 10 of, of Romans 5, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while if we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more will we be reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's saying you're not only saved by Christ's death, you're saved by Christ's life. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't only for the sins of God's people but it was also to transfer his moral perfection, his righteousness to us. And so think about it this way. Here's an example. Think about if your sin is a debt that you owed to God. God didn't just pay your debts. If God just paid you your debts, that brings you down to zero. 
You are neither rich, you are neither poor, you just are. You're at zero. But for what Christ did and he transferred to you, it's not only that he paid all your debt, he paid all your sin, he made you rich. And not with money, with something much better than money, with perfect righteousness so that you can continue into eternity knowing God and enjoying him and being with him forever. And so, something encouraging I was thinking about with this that I want to encourage you with is that if you're in Christ, God's love for you, God's affection for you, your position before God isn't predicated on you. It's not predicated on your performance. And that's a great thing because regardless of how you feel, regardless of whether you messed up, regardless of whether you read your Bible this week, God has not changed his affections for you if you are in Christ in the slightest. And it's because of what his son has done for you. What Christ did on the cross is fixed. It's a fixed point in history and it's never changing. And so those in Christ will never have the affections of God change about them because it's ultimately not about them. It's about Christ. And so when God sees you, he sees a son. He sees a daughter. He sees someone in Christ. And so, if you are in Christ, God's favor, God's love, God's acceptance is fixed on you forever and will be for eternity. But what's the significance? What's the significance for our life right now of sacrifice? There's a few things that come to mind, and one is, is reconciliation reconciliation with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself to us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, the fact that we need to be reconciled speaks to the lie in our culture. There's a lie that pervades our culture, and I think it honestly pervades much of the church today. And the lie is that human beings are basically good, or at worst, we're neutral with God. Yeah, we're not perfect, but we're basically good. Humanity's pretty good. But that's untrue. That's not what the scriptures teach. It teaches that human nature is dominated by evil and sin. Human nature is dominated by evil and sin. Wickedness is our most natural inclination. It teaches that even from the womb, our sin is present. And anyone who has children knows this. You know it. I remember we were in Utah a couple years ago. Uh, This is even before I had children, but just had been around your children enough to know there's plenty of sinners. But... uh, (laughs) 
I was talking to another young man who was probably, I was probably 27, he was probably like 20. Uh, I was talking to this young Mormon man, and he just really was struggling with the idea that we could inherit sin from Adam, that we are born naturally sinful. And he said, just, just look at any children, man. You think they're sinful? And I said, how many children do you have? Well, none. I said, you don't spend much time with children, do you? I said, well, no, I have a nephew, I guess. <laughs> and I said, look at children, man. Children are joy. They're a blessing. But you see their sinful nature as soon as it can come out. You have to teach your children how to share. You have to teach your children how to be kind. You have to teach your children to not hit their siblings. What you do not have to teach them is how to lie for the first time. You don't have to teach them to cheat for the first time. You don't have to teach them to be selfish for the first time. That all just comes as a sweet, natural mode of children. I've been trying to tell all the uh, youth ministry kids that about Isaiah because they just think he's the best thing ever. I'm like, trust me, it's already coming out and it's there. And so we're born naturally sinful. It doesn't mean we can never do anything good, but it does mean that as our natural inclination. And it does mean that even the good things we do will not suddenly erase the natural inclination of our heart or the evil that we have done. And so the Bible teaches that we're alienated from God, estranged from God. That's our natural state, and so we need reconciliation. You can go ahead to the next slide. But look at even the language that these, these are just some verses that came off the top of my head that speak to our nature. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, malice, haters, envious, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, deceivers, unrighteous, violent, bitter, unsteady souls. That's the way that the Bible describes the human condition because of sin. And maybe you haven't committed everything on there, but somewhere you're in there. One of us, all of us are in one of those at least, if not more. And so that's the natural human condition. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, we are children of wrath by nature. We are children of wrath because God is a good and righteous God. And it's a good thing that God will punish sin and evil. I hope you want a God that will punish sin and evil. Then in a world of genocide, a world of slavery, a world where people get ripped off or people get wronged, God sees those and that he will right those one day. The problem is we're the ones who perpetuate that evil much of the time. We're the ones who are on this list that perpetuate that evil and that's a problem. Because how is God going to save us but remain just in punishing evil if it's a good thing for him to punish evil? The answer is through the sacrifice of Christ and what Christ done, has done in taking our place. And forgiveness is never free. If you're wondering, why can't God just forgive us? I mean, we do that for each other, right? Someone messes up, does something wrong, and I forgive them. But the truth is, forgiveness, it always comes with a sacrifice, it always comes with a sacrifice. Going back to the uh, debt analogy, consider when you forgive someone of a debt or they have wronged you. It's not that that money just disappears. It's not that that offense just disappears. 
You have taken it upon yourself when you forgive somebody to absorb the cost of that. I'm going to be out a hundred dollars. I'm going to be out a thousand. I'm going to be out a million. I'm not going to be able to have that opportunity. I have lost this loved one. And now I am absorbing that cost upon myself. And it's the same thing with God. But God has chosen to ultimately absorb the wrath upon himself in the person of his son. And so God paid the price for you, the ultimate price, his own son. It says in Isaiah that it was God's will to crush him. But Jesus willingly went to the cross, even though the fullness of God, that Jesus himself was the imprint of God's exact nature, he still went to the cross. And ultimately, the sacrifice of of the cross in Christ is not even about us, it's about God. Yes, it is a measure of God's love for us, but even more so, what the cross tells us is a measure of how glorious God is. How bad is your sin? How bad is your rebellion against God? It would take a person of infinite worth and glory to pay for that sin to make you right with that person again. Your sin is not just great because of the amount of sins that you commit. Your sin is great because of the greatness of the one you have sinned against. Your sin is great because of the greatness of the one you have sinned against. The perfect one. The ultimate one. The glorious one. The one who has given you everything. You owe him everything. You have an infinite obligation to him. And so that's why Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. You want to know what a New Year's resolution is? Be an ambassador for Christ in 2022. 21. I knew I was going to mess that up. As soon as I hesitated, I was like, oh no, what year is it? <laughs> Next year, be an ambassador for Christ. That's what God's will is for your life. Be an ambassador for Christ to plead with people to be reconciled to God. Second thing is adoption. Adoption. God has done more than reconcile us in Christ. And I hope at this point it's obvious that God has loved us through Christ's sacrifice. But more pointedly, the Bible speaks of many doctrines of exactly how God has loved us. And God has loved us through adoption into God's family. And that would not happen unless it was for Christ's sacrifice. We do not naturally belong in God's family. That's why Paul says we're children of wrath. And so there is a sense in which everyone is created in the image of God. Everyone is worthy of dignity and respect. But not every single person is God's child. Not every single person is God's children. Only those in Christ are God's children and he has adopted us into his family of which we did not naturally belong ephesians 1 3 through 6 says this blessed be the god the father of our lord jesus christ who blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him 
in love, he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, God hasn't just reconciled you to make you a friend. He's made you a son or daughter. And that comes with all the rights, all the privileges of any legitimate child. He lavished every spiritual blessing upon you. And you will inherit with the same legitimacy as your elder brother, Jesus Christ. You are just as much a child because of what he has done. That is a picture of God's love. I can think honestly of no more vivid passage that illustrates this than Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, um, God is speaking to Israel. And though he's speaking to Israel, it's a picture of what our salvation is like. It's a picture of God's adoption of us and what he has done for us. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses, starting in verse 4, says this. And it's a graphic one, but it is so good. It says, On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut, and you were never washed or rubbed with salt or wrapped in a cloth. And no one had the slightest interest in you, and no one pitied you or cared for you on the day you were born, and you were unwanted, dumped in a field, and left to die. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. But I came by and saw you there helplessly kicking about in your own blood. And I said, I saw you laying there and I said, live. And I helped you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew up and became a beautiful jewel. And your breast became full and your body hair grew. But you were still naked. And when I passed by you again, I saw you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness. And I declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And then I bathed you and washed off your blood, and I rubbed you with fragrant oils into your skin, and I gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk and beautifully embroidered and sandals and fine goatskin leather, and I gave you lovely jewelry bracelets, beautiful necklaces, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, and a lovely crown for your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothes were made of fine linen and costly fabric and you were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest food, choice flour, honey, and olive oil and became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen and so you were. Your fame soon spread throughout the world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. That is a picture of what God does to your spiritual state when he adopts you into his family. That's why my wife and I are passionate about adoption. Because there, right there, the doctrine of adoption. And I don't think that every Christian should adopt, to be honest, just like maybe every Christian won't be a missionary. But if you're not someone who adopts, let's be a church that's passionate about supporting people who do. And there's plenty more people than my wife and I. Let's be a church that's passionate about sending missionaries on the field to see more people to come into God's family. And the last thing is eternal life. 
God has given us eternal life because of Christ's sacrifice. It's the greatest gift we could ever receive. It's greater than anything you've ever received for Christmas. And a lot of people know the words of John 3.16, but they honestly fail to read the verses around it. Before John 3.16, we read John 3.14, which says this, And Moses lifted up the serpent, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why was Jesus lifted up? Why was Jesus sacrificed? So you could have eternal life. And what people get wrong about eternal life is eternal life is not primarily about a quantity of life. To be honest, when I was a younger Christian and I heard about eternal life, it sounded quite boring. We're going to sing forever and ever in heaven to some God. That's what we're going to do for eternity, really. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what we're attracting people to this faith through. That's not what eternal life is. It does, yes, mean eternally being with God forever. But it means, it speaks to a quality of life, of knowing God forever and ever. That is what Jesus meant in John 10.10 when it said, I came to give them life and I came to give it abundantly. A full life. And Jesus elaborates what eternal life is in his prayer in John 17. Jesus prayed for you. John 17, look it up later when you go home. Jesus prayed for you and he said, when G- he said, Father, the hour has come. Glory your- glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. But then he explains what eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Ultimately, God offers himself through Christ. There's no greater gift than God can give than himself. To have eternal life is to know God and to enjoy him. You want pleasure? God is the ultimate pleasure. There's right hands at his pleasures forevermore. You want joy? God is the most joyful being in the universe. You want righteousness? You want justice? God is the most righteous being in the universe. He's sort of stuck just being the most awesome. If God would have given you anything less than Jesus himself, it would have been less loving. The reason God gives himself through Christ is because there's no greater gift that he could have given us himself, and to know him for eternity. That is what eternal life is. That you will enjoy life from the moment of your conversion into eternity forever and ever. And you will only learn and know God more and more and your joy and your peace and your satisfaction will ever only increase and increase and increase as you know God more and more. There's a couple more verses, John 3, we'll end here, but it says in verse 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But it says this, 
It warns us, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at this year. I don't know what you think about coronavirus. I don't know what you think about your own death or you even contemplate that. But the reality is you're going to die some way, somehow. And I ask you, where do you stand? Where do you stand? Are you in Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in what Christ has done for you? It doesn't just apply to you automatically. Are you a child of wrath? And if you are, Christ's sacrifice will not pay for your sins unless you trust in him. You will pay for your sins for eternity. And so where do you stand before God? And if you are a child of God, going into the next year, how are you rejoicing in your eternal salvation? How are you rejoicing in the greatest gift that God has ever given you? To know him, to enjoy him forever. And how are you offering that hope to others? Let's pray. God, You have loved us in Christ beyond anything we could comprehend, Lord. I pray for us as a congregation that we would live as people that don't overlook the sacrifice you have made, Lord. Help us to remember. Help us to remember Christ's sacrifice when we're prone to complain. Help us to remember sacrifice, Lord, when people are dying around us. Help us to remember sacrifice in the terminal illnesses. Help us to remember your sacrifice when the money is low, Lord. Help us to remember your sacrifice. Your affections have not changed for us, Lord. Your favor has not changed for us. And let us long for the world to come. And Lord, I pray for those here, if they stand before you and they are currently under your wrath, Lord, that they would turn from their sins, that they would come, they would speak to one of the pastors here or somebody who knows you, and they would not leave this place continuing under your wrath, Lord, that you are loving them and being patient with them, Lord, hoping that your kindness and your patience will lead them to repentance. And we pray for that, Lord, that people both saved and unsaved, that we would repent and turn from our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.